Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 21, Empire of Light and Colour, the tale of Sergei Plakudin-Gorsky. The old man sits on a wooden garden chair, his back slightly hunched, in his creased, powder blue peasant tunic. His right hand clutches a cane, the object mostly obscured by his crossed legs, contained within baggy, ill-fitting grey trousers, tucked into shin-high black leather boots, their creases capturing the light. His face, mostly covered in a straggly, snow-white beard, is turned towards the left, blue eyes under bushy grey eyebrows, staring as if at some person or object that has caught his attention. In the background, blurred trees and a path running between them form black and white stripes, in stark contrast to the crisply defined visage of the aged subject gazing out. What I have just described to you is a 1908 picture of the august novelist and thinker Lev Tolstoy, author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina. While this was certainly not the first picture ever taken of the writer, it was the first to be done in colour. Its publication was a sensation, propelling to fame in Russia the man who captured the striking image, the photographer, chemist and filmmaker Sergei Prokhodin-Gorsky. The wide distribution and universal acclaim that the portrait met led to interest in Plakudin-Gorsky's diverse photographic oeuvre, ranging from Black Sea Rivieras to Euro factories, from peasants hacking at hay to the ancient splendour of medieval monastery frescoes, all of which were captured in fabulously vital colour. The eloquence of these images was matched only by the eloquence of the photographer himself, who made repeated calls for the need to use his new technique of colour photography to systematically document the Russian Empire's historical treasures in the hope of easing the task of restoration and renovation, or, as he put it, the precise goal that colour photography pursues is to leave a precise document for the future. We hold in our hands a precious means of saving decaying monuments from oblivion. He proved his point by exhibiting his photos of renowned mosques in the Central Asian cities of Samarkand and Bukhara, destroyed shortly afterwards in 1907 by a terribly violent earthquake. All this led, on the 26th of April 1909, to a meeting with Emperor Nicholas II himself. Selecting images deliberately intended to interest and entice the Tsar, Gorsky politely proposed his project to comprehensively and systematically photograph in colour the ancient monuments and natural beauty of the Tsar's realm. Nicholas, clearly impressed with what he had seen, agreed telling Gorsky to speak with the Minister for the Railways to set matters in motion. For much of the next three years, Gorsky was to visit a mass of sites in central and western Russia, the Volga and the Urals, western Siberia and central Asia, 
taken hither and thither by government transport. A railway carriage, especially equipped with a photographic laboratory, fully crewed steamboats, and a Ford motor car, sent to the Ural capital of Yekaterinburg to help the photographer traverse the region's difficult roads. The end result was a collection of some 3,500 negatives, which, while falling far short of Gorsky's vastly ambitious vision, nonetheless captured a good chunk of the empire's immense diversity, making perfect use of Gorsky's nearly unsurpassed technical mastery. As Gorsky described his art to Tolstoy, These images are eternal. They do not change. Nothing rendered in paint can achieve such results. The crown jewel of imperial photography, Gorsky's work sits at the pinnacle of an art form and technical science that had been developing in the Russian Empire for decades. Gorsky's most senior predecessor was Sergei Levitsky, sometimes known as the father of Russian photography. His early snaps of the Caucasian mountains and river springs won him a gold medal at a Paris exhibition in 1848. By the end of the 1850s, there were three photography ateliers in St. Petersburg, including one owned by Levitsky. This number had reached 448 by century's end, joined by 227 in Moscow and countless others scattered across the cities and towns of the provinces. Initially, the cost and the scientific expertise required for photography limited the craft to nobles and the well-to-do. Take Gavril Lumin, a Swiss-born Russian nobleman whose photographs achieved luminous prominence when he accompanied Alexander II's younger brother, Grand Duke Konstantin Nikolaevich, on an expedition to document monuments of classical antiquity in Italy, Greece and the Holy Land. Gradually, the profession became more open to less exalted social groups. Consider the Ural photographer Venyamin Metenkov, whose father was a leather worker. Acquiring his knowledge of chemistry while working as a clerk for a gold mine company in the 1870s, Metenkov opened studios first in his hometown of Mias and then in Yekaterinburg. The latter, a pretty structure in the city centre, still stands today as a museum dedicated to Metenkov and his topographical city shots. At around the same time, one could find in Nizhny Novgorod the studio of Andrei Karelin, an icon painter who had managed to procure an academic education at the St. Petersburg Academy of the Fine Arts. Although it was his portraits of local notables that won him prizes in Edinburgh, Philadelphia and Paris, his most ambitious efforts were intimate, elaborately constructed scenes of middle-class life, taken either inside his studio or private homes. Kralin was one of the earliest to recognise photography as an art form rather than a technical specialism. Himself lacking the background in chemistry usually required for professional photography at the time, he dubbed his atelier a studio of photography and art. But however highly Karelin regarded photography as a specific means and method of art, he, like most others, made his bread and butter selling portraits, both individual and group, to an ever-growing market of private consumers. By the end of the 19th century, such services had become sufficiently cheap 
to allow most of the Empire's subjects to afford a snap or two of themselves and their family members. At around the same time, photographic postcards acquired immense popularity, offering another way for photographers to make money commercially. Amateur photography only started to truly make inroads into these profits in the early 20th century, when the internationally popular Kodak Brownie camera, highly regarded for its low price, portability and ease of use, appeared on the scene. By 1900, there were over 40 photographic associations in Russia, with many catering to these earnest dilettantes. The other societies were more serious and professional, focusing either on the technical side of photography or on its potential as high art. Other money-making opportunities for professional picture-takers, at least in the latter 1800s, tended to be limited to government commissions. In the 1850s, some in the imperial government had recognised the value of photography for military purposes, with the governor of the Caucasus dispatching the army engineer Colonel A.B. Ivanitsky to Paris to study the arts of making images with light. Similarly, both officials and academics were interested in using photography to document the empire's enormously diverse populations. One might mention here the German citizen G.F. Locker, who in 1868 compiled an album of the non-Russian peoples of the Volga region for presentation to the imperial family, or N.V. Bogayevsky, who captures some 1,220 photographs of Central Asian nations for a six-volume work that was presented only to the emperor, his heir, and a handful of universities. These ethnographic activities were not always safe for the photographers, turning up as agents of the state and bearing their cumbersome, three-legged monsters, hostility was sometimes encountered, as in 1889, when some villagers threatened to burn down the house in which the ethnographic photographer M. Yevsevev was staying. Through military, industrial and ethnographic commissions, the imperial government sponsored the development of Russian photography, but in other ways the regime stunted it. For instance, the development of photojournalism had to wait until censorship conditions relaxed, with the attempted revolution of 1905, after which most journals and newspapers eagerly purchased photographs to illustrate the pages of their publications. The quality of the photos and printing ranged drastically, from quick and greasy snaps mashed in dripping ink onto cheap tabloid paper to carefully arranged compositions, lovingly applied to the exquisite leaves of professional association journals. One remarkable example of the latter comes from a photo of the fire department of the eastern Siberian city of Ikutsk in 1910, done for the Journal of Russia's Firefighting Association. A hundred or so men are arrayed around and on a tall training tower, their expensive fire engine, ladders and safety blankets all proudly displayed. Some of the younger brigade members hang precariously from either the tower itself or the ladders propped against it. Key to the development of photojournalism was the celebrated figure of Karl Buller. While today's hero Sergei Plokhodin Gorsky was the crown jewel of imperial Russian photography, Buller was undoubtedly its king. Born in what is today Poland, but what was then an eastern province of the German Empire, 
Buller ran away from home at the age of 10 in 1865, bound for St. Petersburg. Here he worked as a delivery boy for a company that specialised in buying and selling specialist photographic equipment. By the age of 20, Buller was running his own company, mass-producing the glass plates on which 19th century photography depended. This factory made Buller's fortune, but he also became deeply invested in the actual process of photography, opening his own studio in Petersburg in 1875. So popular were his portraits that he was able to open up two further ateliers in subsequent decades. But photographic portraiture was not to be his true calling, developing instead a fondness for capturing street scenes. Buller was notorious for rushing out into the streets with his tripod to shoot striking events or simply capture the mood of a summer evening. Just before the First World War, his firm, Buller & Sons, was making a staggering annual profit of 250,000 rubles. When Buller's son donated the fruit of the family's work to the Soviet archives in 1935, a collection of 132,683 negatives was handed over, a number which has now grown to more than 200,000. But as prolific and proficient as Buller was, he was limited to two colours, black and white. Not so with Sergei Prokordin-Gorsky, for whom the realisation of colour photography was an all-consuming life task. Born in 1863 to a middling family of provincial nobles, Gorsky studied the natural sciences at the St. Petersburg Technological Institute in the late 1880s, there coming under the tutelage of the eminent chemist Dmitry Mendeleev, most honoured today for his invention of the periodic table. Mendeleev was fascinated by photography and in 1878 had championed the opening of a new division of the Imperial Russian Technical Society, explicitly dedicated to the development of photography. Here Gorsky was to become a leading member. In 1889, Gorsky studied at photographic laboratories in Berlin and Paris. In the German capital, he became familiar with the techniques of Adolf Mieter, who, a decade or so later, was to realise a fully-fledged method of colour photography. While Gorsky's own techniques were certainly indebted to Mieter, he did not simply copy, but innovated and improved. Mieter's free colour filter technique for producing colour slides or magic lanterns was notoriously complex and slow, with indoor shots on a cloudy day requiring more than three hours of exposure. Equally, extremely expensive projectors had to be acquired to display the slides, and even then, the operator had to be very careful to ensure that the slide filters were properly aligned for the entire contraption to actually function. Working on colour from at least 1902, Gorsky was able to, through synthesising a particular form of bromide gelatin plates, to reduce the exposure time down to moments telling Tolstoy in 1908 that the photos would take no more than three seconds. Gorsky never stopped refining his processes or moving into new fields. As of 1812, he made some of the first efforts to produce movies in colour, an endeavour he was to engage in, although without much success, 
for the next two decades. By the time Gorski introduced his first colour results in 1905, some 70 slides of generic scenes, he had already established a significant name for himself in the national and international scientific and photographic communities through tireless lecturing, teaching, publishing and exhibiting, with some awards already attached to his name. His association with government work also began at this time, being one of the photographers commissioned to collect photos of the bloody Manchurian battlefields of the Russo-Japanese War. In 1907, manifesting another one of his passions, astronomy, Gorski accompanied an expedition to Central Asia to photograph an eclipse. This he showed off in his own journal, Amateur Photographer, a publication he was to manage until 1909, although it is likely that his own highly specialised pieces could only have bewildered or frightened most dabblers in photography. Gorski also proved something of a pioneer in the field of forensic and crime scene photography, establishing for this in 1907 a special section of his laboratory, or as he called it, his experimenting den. This then is where Gorski's career stood when he received his commission from Nicholas II in 1909. He had already repeatedly demonstrated the viability and applicability of his colour photography on several occasions to great success. This method was undergirded by Gorski's ambition and sense of mission. As already noted, Gorski believed that colour photography was instrumental in the fight to preserve historical buildings and artefacts, a notion that was to prove prophetic when, decades later, the Soviet government blew up some of the churches and cloisters that Gorski chronicled. Another central aim was education. Through infinitely reproducible slides, prints and postcards, Gorski wanted to bring the Russian Empire into the classroom, the lecture theatre and the auditorium, giving people both a sense of their own heritage and the Russian state's boundless limits. Or, in his words, The goal of the compilation of a systematic collection of colour photographic images with explanatory text of the sites of Russia, including those of religious, historic, ethnographic, industrial and artistic relevance, is to gather material about the fatherland, to awaken love for the motherland and interest in studying its beauty and inexhaustible riches, without which the cultivation of genuine patriotic feelings in youth is inconceivable. It is such an important goal that it justifies the funds that must be spent to achieve it. Given all this, it is no surprise that one of the first things that strikes the reader when perusing a modern album of Gorski's work is the sheer variety of the pictures. Like some of his predecessors, he was certainly interested in ethnographic images, as attest those photos taken in Central Asia, a region only incorporated into the empire in the 1870s. Here we find a Jewish school in session in Samarkand, two prisoners chained to a wall, street vendors selling carpets, melons and a miscellanea of other produce, bricklayers and goat herders, a horde of horsemen crossing the desert steppe, and a jail cell with the captives stretching their hands out to the camera, while an armed guard looks impassively on. 
By far the most well-known of these is the portrait of Saeed Mir Mohammed Alim Khan, the Emir of Bukhara, a Russian satellite state. Awkwardly sat on a short stool, the hefty man looks askance into the camera, a golden belt pushing in against the bulging stomach. His bristling black beard, white turban and exquisite royal blue robes, embroidered with flowing azure and violet blossoms, speak of the presumed exoticism of the East, while the epaulets on his shoulders and imperial medals on his chest point to Russian rule in the region and the emir's education in St. Petersburg. Then there are the industrial photos, the presence of which was dictated both by Gorsky's own personal interest in technological advances and the government's desire to broadcast its growing industrial prowess. This is why the first part of Gorsky's expedition took place on the Marinsky Waterway, a canal system completed in the late 1890s to link the River Neva and thus St. Petersburg to the Volga, the main artery of Russia's internal market. The pictures from the Urals are most impressive in this regard, showing stone cliffs blasted out of the way and rivers impressively bridged to pave the iron road of a Trans-Siberian railway. Standing in front of mighty chimney stacks and in the midst of mammoth quarries, the people are often dwarfed by the industrial projects they work at. In absolute contrast are the pictures Gorsky took of everyday life, especially among the peasants. Here there is no trace of modern technology. Entirely wooden carts move goods. Hay, flax and fields are hacked with wooden agricultural implements. These images evince a certain timelessness, a snapshot of an unchanging rural Russia. And the people themselves stand out, with Gorsky often putting them front and centre. Gorsky himself recalls the reaction of normal people when he arrived in their villages. No sooner had I appeared with my camera on the street than I became an object of the peasants' attention, both men and women. Quickly they began to request that I take portraits, and when I said that I do not take portraits, each said, Don't worry, we'll pay money, you know. This story was repeated day after day in other villages I visited. One could count 100 people, and every one would eagerly be photographed. Gorsky was surprised to find that all these people knew a great deal about how to be photographed. They searched for spots with the best lighting, and behaved themselves strictly while posing. Women, understanding how black and white images rendered colours, often refused to wear their normal pale blue skirts for fear they would look white in the photographs. The work on the expedition was exhausting, as Gorsky describes. I took photographs in the most varied and often very difficult conditions, and then in the evenings the photos had to be developed in the laboratory in the carriage. The work often took until late at night, especially if the weather was unfavourable, and I had to determine if it would be necessary to repeat the shot with different lighting before departing to the next intended destination. The effort seemed worth the hard graft. However, when it came time for the government to buy the results as they stood in 1911, it declined, leaving the collection in Gorsky's hands. This also ended the official expeditions, although Gorsky continued to take government commissions, 
such as the charge to produce an album of battle sites from the Napoleonic Wars to mark the centenary of the French Emperor's failed invasion of Russia in 1812. With the declaration of the First World War in 1914, Gorski began training aeroplane and balloon pilots to take aerial photographs. More actively, he went as part of a government team to check on the progress of the Murmansk Railway in the far Russian north, a connection that would make it easier for Russia's British and French allies to deliver vital military and civilian supplies. As ever, Gorsky did not limit himself to purely utilitarian goals, taking pictures of the island Solovetsky Monastery in the White Sea and the Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war forced to build the new railway line. Throughout his life, Gorsky was studiously apolitical, an attitude that was to do him favours when the Bolsheviks came to power in 1917. He was initially appointed as a professor of the Petrograd Photo and Cinema Institute, hosting talks there in March 1918 that attracted around 2,000 visitors. However, the descent into violence of a war and the murder of the imperial family showed Gorsky it was too dangerous to remain. Taking on a government purchasing trip to Norway, he fled to Britain, leaving in Russia his wife Anna of 27 years and his children, who often accompanied him on his expeditions and appear in some of the photographs. After two years in London, where he published in some British scientific journals, he headed to France, where he was to spend the remainder of his life, first trying to get his colour cinema business off the ground and then as the owner of a photography studio. Although Gorski remarried in his first years of exile and had children with his new wife, his old Russian family were able to join him again in 1925. It seems they brought with them most of his collection, around 2,000 negatives. After Gorski died of old age in 1944, his sons found that the collection, having survived war, revolution and Nazi occupation, was beginning to suffer from mould and fractures leading them to sell it to the American Library of Congress for $4,000. Neglected until the 1980s, an exhibition of some of Gorski's photographs in 1985 amazed the world, permanently associating his name with our vision of a late Russian Empire. In 2000, the Library of Congress undertook a massive project of digitalization and restoration, making the results freely available on the internet. Gorski's ultimate intent, that his pictures feature in textbooks, schoolrooms and university lectures to acquaint people with the empire, is now being realised, although in a very different context and with a very different pedagogical aim. In Russia, meanwhile, the fact that Gorski's collection was taken abroad in 1925 meant there was little access to or knowledge of his work. The few scholars that were interested found themselves unable to print much about Gorsky, since he, as an emigre who had fled the Bolsheviks, was judged a politically unworthy topic. It was only in the 1990s that Russians were in part reunited with Gorsky's tremendous legacy through popular documentaries, well-attended exhibitions and luxuriant albums. Speaking to you as I am through this rather poorly produced podcast, it is difficult to depict in words the immense power, the striking quality and the stirring beauty of Gorsky's pictures. 
I hope you all use the links I include in the description to see them for yourselves. Whenever I show friends and relatives Gorski's photos, a common reaction is to exclaim that they can scarcely believe these images were taken more than a century ago. Gorski was no doubt an absolute master of his craft, rendering images as crisp as if taken on a modern camera. But there is something more to Gorski than just his technical skill. Nor is it just the fact that these pictures are in colour. Gorski may have been a Russian pioneer here, but he was not alone. The late imperial writer Leonid Andreev, sometimes called Russia's Edgar Allan Poe, made delightful use of colour photos to show that despite the dark and gloomy nature of his stories, he enjoyed a cheerful and loving family life. Travelling for at least eight years in the Russian Empire, the Swedish military officer and potentially spy, Karl Berggren, took a similarly encyclopedic approach to Gorski to produce a range of colour slides, although his method was much less sophisticated. As many amateurs did at the time, he hand-painted the slides resulting from his photographs. But, as interesting as Andreev and Berglund's pictures are, they cannot hold a candle to Gorski's. Something else makes Gorski stand out. Although he believed strongly that photography was a science, rather than an art, and repeatedly said as much, he absolutely possessed an artist's eye for shot composition. The way in which he photographed people in particular catches the eye, as with the Russian realist paintings of the 1860s and 70s, or the short stories of Anton Chekhov, Gorsky seems to see beyond the clothes, condition and class of his subjects, bringing out the human, something universal that can connect us to them across time, culture and space. And finally, there is perhaps the chronicling of the lost world of the Russian Empire. While the Empire shouldn't be romanticised or the subject of nostalgia in any way, it was still a world in which millions of people once lived. Gorski provides us with the ultimate window back into that past, an alluring glimpse, however incomplete and brief, of what it might have been like to have lived in a place that has been utterly transformed over the last century. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.